Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Which is, of course, Luxembourgeois, I believe. Uh, not Luxembourgish. Luxembourgeois for Achtung, Achtung. That's amazing. Yeah. Whatever. Um, highly relevant around this time of year. Um, whereas we're, you know, we're just getting past the bulge anniversary. Luxembourg, of course, got caught right up in events. I lost a lot of men. Uh, there was a moment of delicious irony post-war as Luxembourgeois troops took part in the occupation of West Germany. That must have felt good. Yes. See how you like it. <laughs> Is this the smallest country in history to occupy a major international power? Good question. Anyone know? I suppose the, have the Vatican ever yes. occupied anywhere? The whole of Latin America, so. mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the uh, Second World War History podcast with me, Al Murray. And at the other end there is James Holland. Yeah, it's a good afternoon, good morning, whatever time of day it is. Hello. Um, we should say, we should just apologise, really, shouldn't we? Because we have been talking to Luxembourg and the Bulge and all that. Yeah. There was, we, we were sort of vaguely promising we were going to go over and we haven't yeah. quite got around to it. So sorry, yes, everyone. We couldn't make it add up because um, you had to go to Stuff the Panto. Stuff was happening. You had to go to the Panto, didn't you? <laughs> I had to go to the Panto. No, 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 no. Oh, no, I Curry. didn't. No, you say, oh, no, I didn't. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did, James. <laughs> oh, do you know what? 
Oh, yes, I absolutely did. It was and, good, and wasn't it? Was it good? It was good. It was yeah. good. Yeah, Julian Clary is very funny. And, yeah. you know, and um, and what's his name? That lovely Gary Wilmot and that lovely Matt Baker. He was in it too. Did um, Gary so do his Tube Station song? He didn't do his Tube Station song. He did another one. He did an amazing kind of 10-minute songs from every every song from literally every musical you can ever think of and put them all together into one long medley it was quite extraordinary um and absolutely my favorite bit in the whole thing but it um obviously wasn't quite the same as freezing your nuts off in the uh, foxholes in foy outside bastogne no no i I don't think gary wilmot is a bulge veteran i don't think he is oh no he isn't oh no he isn't oh yes he is yeah sorry i've really got to get into this panto chit chat um um but we are going to do some trips in the future. That's the bottom line. Yes. Now, we have an email. To kick things off, we have an email sent by... Uh, there's no actual indication of how old this person is, but there's the email, so there's a clue, um, about Red Cross parcels. Because a few podcasts ago, before Christmas, we talked about... Someone asked about Red Cross parcels, and you and I didn't know. We didn't know, did we? We drew a no, complete blank. No, we didn't know. No. It's and, one of those things you just th- take for granted. It just happened. Yeah. Exactly. So he says, hi, gents, love the podcast, etc, etc. Just listening to your podcast discussion about how Red Cross parcels and post and passengers in general got through between warring states and to POWs. I'm no expert, but a couple of points. As regards traveling and mail between occupied Europe and the rest of the world, Lisbon played an important role. There were scheduled BOAC flights from London to Lisbon, as well as Lufthansa flights from Lisbon to Madrid and onwards to the rest of occupied Europe. As late as September 44, the Lufthansa route net would have allowed you to fly from Lisbon to Helsinki. Although God knows how long it would have taken. And I would not want to have been on the Madrid to Stuttgart or the Berlin-Stockholm leg with marauding RAF and Red Air Force fighters around. These planes would obviously have taken mail as well. As for Red Cross parcels themselves, they were shipped to Lisbon as well under escort from the US, the UK and Canada, then loaded onto a Red Cross ship to the south of France and thence transported to Geneva. From there, they were transported to the individual POW camps. As far as I know, the Red Cross organised this and presumably the Wehrmacht, Wehrmacht was happy to let them as it meant they didn't have to feed POWs as much as they would otherwise. Anyway, good work on oh, the absolutely podcast. Absolutely amazing. That is fascinating, isn't it? Isn't it? And it's that's sort of, from that, that all adds up and that sounds logical to me. Well, but, yeah. But I'm really, really pleased he bothered to email Well, because, because I mean, to, to bring it right up to the minute, I mean, we've just seen Iran shoot down an airliner yep. by accident. And you think, how actually do you, if you've got an, air, an airport, how do you end up shooting down airlines and islands by accident? But what we're talking about here is, I mean, the idea that a BOAC flight would f- probably fly from Southampton, I suppose, to, yep. to Lisbon, or Hearn, Hearn, maybe. Yeah, and, was another and, one. And maybe what we're actually talking about is like a is a, a flying boat, like a Sunderland or something, but yep, a, a disarmed one or the the civilian equivalent, and and yet not being shot down and actually managing to. I mean, what what, what would it have a big IFF beacon on it saying, "For God's sake, I'm an airliner." I've well, got. I don't know. Post. Leslie Howard was famously shot down and killed, wasn't he? Course, the Hollywood yeah. film star. Yeah. You know, and he was in a civvy, he wasn't a, was he in a military plane? I'm not sure. But anyway, he, you know, yeah. got caught out. And and also, but, 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 and also, but the, by the same token, Lisbon is a hotbed of spies as well. It's absolutely crawling yes. with espionage people. Yes. And that, uh, uh, and is, and is a way, is a way in and out of um, occupied Europe. Is it sort of entrepot yep. for, for all mm. sorts of stuff. So, I mean, this well, is that, the, and of course, that's that's what they're doing in Casablanca is to get their exit yeah. visa out of Casablanca to Lisbon from yeah. there to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I mean, well, that's it's fascinating. That's it's really fascinating. And yeah, Alistair, who sent us that, um, says, uh, good work on the podcast. It keeps me entertained on my commute here in Berlin. Wow. So how about that? Go. That yeah, message brilliant. smuggled out, obviously, via Lufthansa <laughs> to Lisbon <laughs> yeah. in the tip of someone's umbrella. Thank you, Alistair. Um, yeah, well, I'm not talking of airplanes and aircraft. Yeah. I've, 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 you, you were reading Mark Mazower. Yeah. I'm, I've been reading all about Leonard Cheshire. Oh. The Leonard Cheshire VC DSO and two bars DFC, later Lord Cheshire. Uh, um, who, well, who set uh, up... And what an amazing guy he was. I mean, I knew he was amazing, but I didn't realise how amazing he was. I mean, Now, really... the story I know about him is he got paid, overpaid, didn't he? And he sent back the... He, <laughs> he sent back his... They'd no, what happened? Like no, so what quid. happened... Yeah, he'd done, he'd done his... He'd done sort of well over 50, you know, 60, 70 combat missions and so got promoted upstairs to a desk became a group captain and station commander and was just itching to get back into operational flying so after guy gibson left there was a there was a uh, another guy was brought in and was promptly shot down over the dortmund um canal. canal yeah and then um so there was a vacancy at 617 squadron and he said, oh, you know, can I take it? Can I take it? And there was always this feeling that, that Ralph Cochran, who was the um, head of five group, wasn't going to get on with with Cheshire. But actually, they, they hit it off really well. And Cochran said, yeah, I'd love you to take over, but you're going to have to take a demotion down to wing commander. Yeah. And he'd been in the job, I don't know, a few months. And suddenly he got this bill through saying, you know, we've been overpaying you. You need to cough up. Thank you very much. And he did, though, because didn't he? He did, yeah, because he was such a because he's such a straight bat. Cheshire's the thing, isn't he? Well, he's this, this is incredible character, and and before the war, you know, he was sort of, had this rather sort of gilded childhood. He was the son of a of an Oxford don. Um, they were lived pretty comfortably, you know, packed off to private school, um, won a scholarship to Oxford, um, sort of larked through life. He was good at sport, brilliant at tennis. Went to Germany just before the war, I think nineteen thirty eight or something, and. And was a finalist in some in some tennis tournament, um, and only narrowly failed to to, to beat the pro. And uh, you know everything he touched, he was just really good at, and everyone loved yeah. him. And and he and he had this huge ambition to be sort of you know rich and successful, and all the best suits and a Bentley and all the rest of it. And you know when it came to flying, you know he just thought great. You know this is a total laugh, and a war's come, which means you know I can I can take flying to another level you know what's not yeah. to like i mean he just thought the yeah. whole thing was just brilliant really exciting loved the camaraderie didn't feel particularly scared so i remember talking to les munro who'd been on the dams raid and then served under yeah. under cheshire later with 617 squadron and i remember him saying to me leonard cheshire was the most exceptional man i've ever met bar none right and i remember then subsequently meeting another person who served on 617 squadron in 1944 and he said exactly the same thing and you just sit over. There's not a lot again. of people because not a lot of people had that kind of thing to say about Guy Gibson, did they? No, and I think Guy and I think what's really exceptional about Guy Gibson is that he is clearly suffering from combat stress big yeah. time by the time he takes command of six one seven squadron. By the time he, he finishes um on one oh six squadron in March nineteen forty forty three, he you know, he's absolutely screwed. I mean, you know, he's a physical yeah. and mental wreck. And, and that's when Cochrane says, how do you fancy doing one last trip? And, and you know, he kind of thinks, oh, my God. Um, uh, but he does it. And I think what's amazing about Gibson is Gibson just somehow digs into the very core of his being and 
drags himself into those Lancasters and and, and yeah. does the dams raid. And his leadership on the dams raid is absolutely outstanding. I mean, you know, he absolutely in my humble opinion, deserves his Victoria Cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he does it despite, you know, being a wreck. Uh, and, and, to, and to do it so brilliantly and to so with so much courage is, is just extraordinary. And it is, it is absolutely right that, that Gibson is, you know, fated and and lauded yeah, yeah. for what he did but he is yeah. but, it, but as, as a as a as a natural leader he's he's from a completely different bag to, different different and a different utterly different approach yeah but, uh, because, because, because with cheshire it, it just comes very very easily yeah. you know he's but a, 617 squadron after the dams raid is basically a squadron without a purpose um a purpose completely yeah and and they 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 scrabble around trying to find sort of um targets and things to do so you like you say the Dortmund ends canal they try and breach a canal don't they it all goes horribly wrong that it all goes horribly wrong um uh, and then eventually they sort of gravitate gravitate towards a proper role and the new weapons come yeah, along so this, and- this is all down to Cheshire so what Cheshire, Cheshire says Cheshire. Cheshire says okay well I, I think the, the the pathfinders which are um in eight group um bomber command and are you know, they, they have their, you know, they're their own unit and what they do is marking. And what, what Cheshire says is, I think there is a different way of marking, which is going in low first and, and having this different type of marking system. Um, and, and then your fo- then your bomber force follows very quickly thereafter. Yeah. Uh, and he started doing it with Lancasters and then they, they progressed onto Mosquitoes and then ultimately they yeah. progressed onto, onto Mustangs, Mustangs. to, to yeah. do it. But they were able to do it very, very accurately and they were able to do it by day or by night. And... Uh, Donald Bennett, who was uh, the founder of the, you know, one of the guys, you know, the, the founding commander of the Pathfinders and, and um, the yeah. Air Officer Commanding of, of A Group, was very sort of sniffy about Cheshire and very sniffier that, you know, they were just the kind of the golden boys. And, you know, actually, yeah. you should really let the proper guys who know what they're doing rather than these these show ponies. But time yep. and again, Cheshire proves it. And he, he in what he does is he goes in and he treats everyone in the squadron the same. So the the ground crew are treated with just as much respect as the air crew. Uh, he knows yeah. everybody. He puts he yeah. creates a little kind of sort of um, church roof fund kind of thermometer with a red line um, for kind of improving efficiency. And if everyone improves efficiency, everyone can have three days off at the end of the month, and they right. achieve it. And yeah. it, it's just about it's about. It's about buy-in. It's about everyone working to a common purpose and everyone being made to feel that they're all equally part of this one objective, which is to become the best squadron in anywhere in the world um, for bombing. And he practices. He trains and trains and trains and trains and gets them all to train and train and train. And the results start coming in. And suddenly they are this absolute elite unit. And they can they can literally just bomb anything. They can take bombing accuracy to a matter of yards where sort of, you know, back in 1941, it was kind of, yeah, you, know, yeah. you were lucky Ten if you miles. got within... Mo- yeah, right. Yeah, and it, yeah, it yeah. is just incredible. The, the, the gulf between what you can achieve just in the summer of 1943 to what you can achieve in the summer of 1944 if you, with the latest technology with the right training with the right approach is absolutely extraordinary but what's really amazing about cheshire so he you know having been tour expired he there's then a little hiatus and eventually he ends up in the in july 1945 being sent out to um to tinian this island from which the um you know the atomic bombs are going to be dropped he gets briefed in washington first he's, he's the only kind of person of his rank to be briefed into what's happening with you know, yeah. the, with, with the whole um, operation, and he does witness the Nagasaki bombing, 
And, and at the end of the war... Although not quite, because this plane doesn't make the rendezvous, so they don't meet up with the, correct. the bombing aircraft, yes. do they? So they, they see the flash. They see the flash, they see the mushroom but, cloud. But, they, but, but, but they're not... They don't... They, yep. they, they never meet, do they? No. Because that's one of the strange things. There isn't a bomber stream on this. They're, no. They're toddling off on their own. No, exactly that. And they go back to Tinian, there's lots of chat about it and all the rest of it, and they kind of know the war's almost over. And uh, But anyway, by, by the end of the war, you know, he is literally one of the most famous people in Britain. You know, he's he's got the Bentley. He's got the Savile Row suits. He's incredibly, yeah. a fa- he's incredibly famous. You know, he's the most decorated airman we have, I think. And, you know, he's a household name. Everyone wants a piece of him. You know, he, he, he's, he's achieved everything he wants. But it all starts to become a bit joyless. He's also married a kind of ex-Hollywood silent star movie. Um, and yeah. that's not going terribly well either. And his life becomes a little bit empty. And he, and he starts doing lots of journalism. And he also starts feeling kind of increasingly outraged by what's happening to these returning servicemen. And that the promised land yet again isn't quite happening. So he, yeah. he tries to yeah. set up this kind of sort of utopia where ex-servicemen can all help each other and work and live and, you know, be fulfilled yeah. and all the rest of it. And it just bombs horrifically. And within a couple of years, his kind of marriage is over. He's got no money left. He's He's got huge debts he's got absolutely yeah. nothing but the skeleton of a house um near petersfield in in hampshire uh, and and you know his reputation is smashed and he's starting to really question everything that he's done and having been this incredible agnostic yeah. an imperialist and an incredibly ruthless gung-ho bomber leader suddenly his whole world has been turned upside down and then he gets asked to, to take in a guy called Arthur Dykes. And Arthur Dykes is in the local hospital and he's dying of cancer. He's only age 50. And Dykes doesn't want to die alone. And the hospital doesn't want him there because they need to free up a bed. And this is pre-NHS. Yeah. So, yeah. so Cheshire takes him back to this huge empty house called Le Court, which he's bought and which is just a shell, and nurses him until his dying days. And... And that's where Leonard Cheshire Holmes come from. That's where the, it comes the, from. And, 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 you know, Dykes dies and it's kind of, OK, so now what do I do? You know, I've got nothing. I've got massive debts. The guy I was looking after has died. And shows incredible humility looking after him. I mean, tending to his every care and yeah. being his personal nurse. And from that, suddenly donations start coming in. By the end of the year, he's got eight people living there. By the following year, he's got 30. And out of that comes... Leonard Cheshire Homes and Leonard yeah. Cheshire Disability. And he yeah. devotes the rest of his life to caring for the disabled and for conflict resolution. And he turns into the... He, he becomes a Catholic. He becomes sort of, you know, yeah. finds God um, and becomes this kind of sort of modern-day saint, marries Sue Ryder and eventually is ennobled. Yeah. Uh, and it's just the most amazing story. And I, yeah. I, I just knew the bare bones about it. And I, I've just found the yeah. whole thing absolutely fascinating. Crikey. Yeah, what a guy. What a guy. What a guy. What a story. Yeah, mate. Well, um, uh, well, we need to take a short break now. Um, I think we do. Yeah, back in a minute. Welcome back to We Have Ways with me and James. Uh, James, where have you been reading about Leonard Cheshire then? Well, I've been reading his biography by Richard Morris, who um, also yeah. wrote... Um, Guy Gibson's biography ah, uh, and, right. and, and Richard's a, a bit of I'm, I know him a, a little bit and he's a lovely fellow and he's a bit of a polymath because he's also an amazing musician and composer as well he writes oh. absolutely beautifully and he really he really tries to sort of understand the subjects of his biography he really tries to get to the bottom of their character and, and as yeah. we all know everyone's got very complex characters there's, there's nothing sort of linear about these things 
Um, and he really nails it, and it's really good. There was another book that was sort of written about him um, some years ago, back in the 1950s, called No Passing Glory, which is just sort of very much of its age. But the Richard Morris book is just—it's just fantastic. And, and one of the main reasons for reading it was because I really, really wanted to know about how he took Six One Seven Squadron on with this um, and gotten to a stage where they became so so accurate at bombing and what these bombing techniques were. And Richard goes yeah. into very great details. Obviously, really done his research into the techniques, what it involved, how they went about it, all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. And it was just fascinating. So it just it just sort of opened my eyes to because you, because, the Because they did war. in the end, like you touched on it, they did in the end use Mustangs, didn't they? And they, they a Mustang would go in, drop a flare, mark the mark the target. When, yeah, they? The, and they're going the, quite low. That was the point. Yeah. So yeah. that you could drop your flares really, really accurately. Really accurately. Which was not yeah. the way with the Pathfinders. Yeah. Um, and, and they there's, had this... There's, there's also that raid, isn't there, where where they go around twice to alert the French factory workers. The, That's right. Uh, yeah. 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 It's yeah. an amazing story. And the big one where where they you know the, the big test for Harris to say for you know because what Cheshire says is you know we want some mosquitoes. Um, this is pre the Mustangs. So you know yeah. we want some mosquitoes and we want to do this and 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 um, Don Bennett is going yeah fish you know this is you're talking out your backside you know this is you know don't don't give in to these people. And Harris goes, well, no, actually, I quite like the sound of this. You know, I'm going to give it a go. But he gives them this really hard test, which is to accurately bomb these targets in Munich, which is yeah. obviously spectacularly well defended. Yeah, incredibly very hard. long way away. Yeah, yeah, a long way away at the sort of limits of, 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 of range and all those sort of things. And they do it, and they do it absolutely spectacularly successful. And it's actually it is that raid that is singled out in the citation for the Victoria Cross above all others. Uh, so although right. it is a VC for consistent... Yeah, bravery in the face of 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 enemy fire. It is that one is the the kind of sort of the main one that is singled out. It's right. it's absolutely incredible. Oh, I should read that. What's it called again? It's Leonard just called Leonard Cheshire by... by Richard Morris. Wonderful, thank you. Right now, Chris Swain has got in touch via Twitter. Thirty-eight million gas masks were issued in the UK at the beginning of the Second World War, even with Nazis' low morals. <laughs> um, that's one way of putting it. They never used gas against civilians. Well, they did use gas against civilians but i think we're talking because after all the gas chambers relied very they did use gas but, but B. Um, yeah did they ever come close to using it in a, i suppose in a as a strategic way yeah he's thinking like, sort of phosgene mustard yeah, gas yeah. rather like they did yeah, yeah. across the, uh, the, yeah. the western front in the first world war absolutely love the pod says chris um well this is this is this is one of those things that, that, that there's a sort of i suppose the the the, the there is the the idea that well Hitler was gas, so he didn't like gas, so that's why they didn't use gas, isn't there? There's, it's the yeah, and the, I think that is a big part of it, to be honest. There's a bit. It is a big and, part and of it was also there's a big point that that even by nineteen, the, you know, nineteen thirty nine to forty five, they still haven't worked out how you control gas because yeah. it doesn't matter how sophisticated your means of delivering it, you still wind got the problem direction. that wind changes and yeah, and there's also the kind of retaliation factor and all the rest of it. Yeah. There's a whole reason why people don't use it, but in fact, the Germans do use it in the Second World War. They use it in the Crimea. Um, yeah, and um, they use it. There's reports of them using it even in November 1941 when they're attacking the Crimea. But they most definitely use it in the summer offensive when they're trying to, you know, when von Manstein's trying to clear the the Crimea as a precluder, as a, as a precursor rather to um, Operation Blue, which is the drive into the summer drive into the Caucasus. Uh, and they get completely bogged down there. One of the reasons they get bogged down there's all these caves and catacombs um, uh, in Sevastopol. And the Russians are in there and they think, well, OK, that's a pretty safe use of using it. So they put these kind of toxic gases into the um, 
um, send them down into these caves and stuff to kind of winkle them out. Horrible. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they really oh, do. Wow. Couldn't care less. I mean, See, you, I know, they're, they're, you, you know, their morals are that low. Well, and you are in the rest, and this is the Rassen Krieg, of course. This is the yep. race war. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it, it, the Eastern Front, the Russian Front, always has that slightly different texture yep. to, to what happens in all, all of the Western encounters. Yep. I, I think it, I think it's fair to say that. I mean, uh, but the, it's also tr- fair to say that, say that the, the, von Manstein actually asked permission to use chemical weapons, you know, proper chemical <laughs> weapons, proper proper gases, and yeah. is, is refused that. But he does. He, what he uses is toxic smoke. Yeah. But it's still God. using chemical weapons. But the the British the British never had to don their gas masks then, yeah. did they? No, but they did. You you would you would use them in sort of smoky situations stuff. But I also yeah. think it's really interesting that someone like von Manstein, who is sort of generally you know in in the kind of narrative of it, is considered one of the the sort of inverted a straight commas, general, a straight just a Prussian aristocrat who was just doing his bit and you know soldier's honor and all the rest of it. You know, he's absolutely bastard yeah. like the rest of them. However. You do have Churchill drawing up feasibility for like having German cities gassed, doesn't he? At one point, yep. he 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 says, "Look, if they're not going to throw in the towel now, and if the and also if the V weapons turn out to to be yep. uh, uh, more powerful than we, could, because there's a real panic on with the V two, they don't know yep. how big the warhead is, and there's a, at one point they think it's a ten ton warhead rather than a one ton warhead, and there's a and there's a real there's a there's a there's a gap in the intelligence. You know they know the V two's coming, but yep. they don't know what it actually is. And you've got Solly Zuckerman saying it's this, and other people yep. saying that, and and uh, uh, and because in the end, until until the first V two start landing, they they just don't know. No, and you 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 do have a moment where Churchill asks for radical action. And let's and he and he says there's a memo where he says well we're going to have to douse these German cities with mustard gas if it comes to it if they won't give in because the because the you know suddenly you've got the, the, the this this final blitz of the of the V weapons is that is one of these things that kind of you know we surely we've again it's one of these things we we talk about this a lot surely they've lost the war how are they able to prosecute any kind of action like this at all and and the is what the British are thinking. And Churchill thinks, well, how do we strike back against the V weapons, especially when they don't really have them quantified, when they don't really know what they are? Yeah. Um, so there's talk of the British using gas right from the top, you know, uh, uh, which is, I think, very interesting. Yeah. And I, suppose, happens, I suppose obviously. the question is, is, is you know, is use, is dropping mustard gas on a city worse than completely pulverising it with bombs? I, you know, I don't know. Well, firebombing it. <laughs> yeah. For, well, which, which, which actually leads us to our next question. Um, uh, uh, greetings from New Zealand. I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. The podcast is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, oh. well, thank oh, you very That's very nice of you. James, you should be knocking on Audible's door and, narr- and narrati- narrate a library of audiobooks. There's some good voices out there, but in my opinion, you clean up. Anyway, I've thought of a few likely topics that I believe will interest your audience and are relevant to the theme of the Second World War story we all want to hear about. This is from Steve Flaunty in Wellington, by the way. Yep. Was the atomic bomb in- actually intended for Germany, but due to their early surrender, it was then used to end the war with Japan? Uh, w- yes. Yes, it was originally, it was expected that it would be used on Germany. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it was a massive and, race against time. And, you know, it was 120,000 different people working on this. Incredibly yeah. complex science and, and technology. And, yeah, you know, it's just it's just not ready. It's, it's only just ready by August. I mean, by the yeah. very end of July, they've got them. They've yeah, brought they, them yeah, they tested a couple of weeks before they use it, don't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. And, 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 and you've got this 
ongoing arm wrestle of the of the British trying to retain influence over the project, realizing they can't afford to do it themselves, trying to get the Americans to keep them in the loop, yep. being handing people joining the Manhattan Project, people being, and tube alloys, it's known as. Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, uh, it's a code name, and it being for, uh, and the British being basically being elbowed out very, very, very gradually. Yep. Roosevelt losing interest in any British involvement. Truman then sealing the deal. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, but the but well because but, they're looking because they're looking to the post-war, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. But what? But the but the point of the the, the point of the atomic we- the atomic bomb, the atom bomb, of course, is it's area bombing. Yeah. Is it's what they're doing anyway? Yeah. Is it's is it's a Hamburg firestorm? It's a Dresden firestorm, or any of those, or Lubeck, or any of those much less famous um, or notorious uh, fire bombings, the Tokyo fire bombing. Yeah. You know that what the US well, more people are killed in Tokyo than are killed in Nagasaki. Yeah, and, and, and the way they were the ruthlessly going about it. But of course, the attraction is it's one plane. Yeah, it's it's it, well, it's the panacea sense, that everyone's been been looking for ever yeah. since the beginning yeah. of bombing. And it and it makes the exactly it makes the it makes duets bombing predictions come true. Yeah, exactly that. Um, uh, which is of course why people have pursued strategic bombing in the first place. Is this idea that. What you do is you 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 create a situation where a government has to has to throw in the towel because it, well, well what it, you're doing is you're creating a situation where the bomb will get through and it will avoid any future ground conflict. Yeah, you know, that's what everyone's been saying, and everyone's been saying all through the war. You know, Harris has been saying it. You know, uh, um, Tui Spots has been saying it. All the bomber men have been saying. You know, w- it, it may well be that we can just win the war just through strategic bombing alone, and everyone's sort of going, well, yeah. you know, maybe not. Uh, and as the war progresses, that kind of that reality seems to become more and more distant. Then suddenly it comes back to the fore again with the arrival of uh, yeah. atomic weapons. And, and yeah. you know, it, it self-evidently does. And, and the fact that we've had all this peace since Second World War, you know, that we haven't had a war that's ever come close to, to being like the Second World War is, of course, because of the, the nuclear deterrent. And, you know, so they, you're right. Duhay was proved right. Yeah. Yeah, just a bit but, later than people but, thought. But the, but the, but but when they were when they were building the bomb, they were thinking of it as an extension of strategic bombing, as yes. a way of, as a, rather than what then becomes apparent to everyone immediately is once it works, is that you've got actually we've got this is a world you've, got, you've, you've almost is, got the ultimate is, bomb. You've got a war changing weapon. Yeah, that means that. Yeah, yeah. and it also the world means, will know, never be the same again. I think. I think exactly. Bomb that incredible realization. Yeah, once you could the never do the warfare has just changed forever. Just just in those moments. Yeah, and you can't do an overlord again because all they need to do is drop a yep. nuke on it. So yep. the scale of everything, the, the, your ability, yeah. tactically and strategically, is completely radically altered. But but that's not that's not how they were pursuing the project. They were no. pursuing the project in how do we get the mo- literally the most bang for our buck? And they're spending similar amounts of money on the Norton bomb site, similar amounts of money on the B twenty nine. More money on the B twenty nine. Yeah, yeah. The B twenty nine project uh, is more, more is more expensive than the Manhattan project. Yeah. Now, um, we read. I read "Quartered Safe" out here as one of our as one of our twelve uh, Christmas readings. Yes. And and George MacDonald Fraser is a such a great book. Yeah. And it uh, is such a good the, book. The, the the bit I read was a sort of action sequence and then his reflections on it. But there's he reflects on an awful lot of the. Uh, of uh, and the, the guy in New Zealand might disagree, but I thought you read that absolutely fantastically. I've got to say, oh, I thought you. it was really good. <laughs> It's well written. What can I say? Anyway, George MacDonald Fraser, he says they'd never dropped it on the Germans. Because he does, the book opens with him saying, thank God they dropped the atom bomb. 
and ask anyone, any one of my contemporaries, ask, ask, ask the men of the Forgotten Army, ask the men who were fighting the Japanese. Ja- the Japanese weren't giving up. This made them give up. Thank God. And he's like, thank God for the atom bomb. But he says they wouldn't have dropped it on the Germans. They they were happy to drop it on uh, on Japanese people because in the end, it was a race. It, it, it had a, there was the racial contingent to the component to yeah. the war in the in the east, in the far east. And he says they the the and and McDonald Fraser gets into this whole thing of you know like it or not you are everyone's racist and he says when you get he says when you get a, a disaster in a foreign country and it gets less coverage that's because in the end white people matter more to white people than 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 people in faraway countries who aren't the same color as them and he and he says so he really gets into this thing he really says they wouldn't have dropped it on the Germans the fact they dropped it on the Japanese and and I think that's that's quite challenging. And a lot, in fact, a lot of the attitudes in that book now, and he wrote it during the first Gulf War. So there's a lot of stuff where he goes, the lad in the lad in Iraq last year, you know, right. um, pr- experienced the same. But did he? Did he write he talk- it as late as that? Did he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, and he wrote about and he writes about the satisfaction. And there's some really interesting stuff about killing in it. You know, he writes about the satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. Satisfa- there's bits of it which are quite uncomfortable, aren't they? Yeah, he talks about the satisfaction of taking a man down and shooting someone, and the the, the feeling of pausing. And he says, and, and he says, those boys in Iraq, in, it, they'll be thinking the same thing because that, that's when he wrote it. And, yeah. and he, I hadn't and appreciated he t- that. Oh yeah, there's because a whole there's a whole bit where he says when people say how many you know did you ever kill anyone, and he and and he says, well, this is how it feels or how it felt for me, and that anyone who's done this knows this this is how it can feel, and that the best thing to do is always say, why do you want to know? That's the best answer that. Ah, uh, reminds me. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a it's a perfect response, isn't it? And I um I do remember my uh, classics and Latin teacher when I was Major Morris, and um <laughs> you, you know when everyone wanted to be next to him, you you take it in turns at lunch to go with different different school teachers. Yeah, and you know, and the best week of the term was when you were on Major Morris's table because you could talk about fighting in Burma, and we'd always go, <laughs> "Sir, did you kill any Japs? Did you kill any Japs, sir?" And he'd, oh, and, he'd, and, he'd, and he'd always go, don't be such babies. <laughs> and, and just dismiss it out of hand. It's just so funny. But a, a, a tangent to this. So so you were talking about Cheshire going out to watch the... the yes. The, I met uh, um, a guy called Frank Ledwidge a while ago, who's a who's a, an air, who's, who's an air power expert. Right. Right. I met him at a friend's funeral. And we got talking and he listened to the podcast. Right. And he said, he told me this thing about a secret squadron of Lancasters unmarked aircraft right and he says i can't quite get to the bottom of this but he thinks what they were doing and it was with a modified aircraft because the only plane that could carry what they thought the atom bomb was going to be was a lancaster until the b-29 came along and he thinks they were rehearsing for using the atom bomb on germany isn't that amazing well that sounds quite plausible to me like, I can't remember where it was, but it was like one of those completely super yep. top secret airfields, unmarked aircraft, yep. only half a dozen or something, yep. and just flying end- flying endless flying endless uh, wow. drills and stuff. Wow! And, and and he says because because you know and to bring it back to the original question, they were they were building it to use they were building it to use as a strategic air weapon. Yeah, they absolutely were. On who on whoever, whoever well, you, came you're not, up you're first. Not gonna, you're not going to waste all that time and money and effort on something yeah. that you're not intending to use. You're just not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they did threaten the Japanese before. I mean, they said, you know, you yeah. need to give up or else we will really, you know, you, you, we will brain down incredible levels of destruction on you. 
Yeah. And the Japanese thought that they meant, you know, they'd invade or more, something. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Or more of the Tokyo star firebombing, you know. They endured that. Well, anyway, well, that's it for today. We've ranged from Luxembourg to the island of Tinian. Um, I hope you all had your passports <laughs> with you. <laughs> Please do get in touch either by using Twitter um, on the hashtag, um, hashtag we have ways, or for the ancient and uh, and venerated we have uh, we have ways podcast at gmail.com. We have ways podcast as one word at gmail.com. See you later. Yeah, cheerio. <laughs> <laughs>